Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 2625 of the Survival Podcast. And, uh, you know, with this COVID pandemic going on, one of the pieces of advice I've given, in, 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 in addition to all of the practical advice on how to deal with it, is don't do COVID TV. Don't be on TV and media and social media 24-7, 365, with nothing but what, what's going on with the, the pandemic. Because what's going on with the pandemic is the same thing that's going on with the pandemic. It's, it's the same. They could run a, a loop, a 15-minute loop of information nonstop all day long on the TV, and most people wouldn't even notice the difference. They're just different people saying the same stuff. So we're going to follow our own example today. We're going to talk not at all about COVID pandemics today, other than it comes up in the discussion because it's going on. We're going to talk about living off-grid. We're going to talk about an adventure lifestyle. We're going to talk about regenerative agriculture. We're going to talk about uh, various methods of aquaponics and growing your own food, uh, specifically from the viewpoint of Eddie Garcia, who has grown up on the Hawaiian Islands and is currently living on one of them. This guy is awesome. This interview, actually, I've already done the interview. Usually I, I pre-record the intro. I'm kind of glad I didn't to get to do that today, though, because this interview kind of starts off a little slow and it picks up. And by the time that we're done with this, it's like me and Eddie are like long-lost brothers, man. It is really a great thing. And it will get you thinking about so many things that you can do to produce your own food and to have more independence in your life that will get your mind where it needs to be right now. The problem people have right now is they don't see a clear version of the future, a clear vision of the future. They think like people seem to think like this is the new normal, like it's just going to be this way forever now or something. It's not. There's a point at which we're either going to beat this thing directly or we're going to beat it indirectly. And we're going to go back to living. And it's a good time now to be planning what you're going to do with this time you have now and with the time that we're heading for in the future. We need to have a positive, optimistic outlook on the future, and there definitely is plenty of reason to. And I think by the end of the show, you'll feel that way. So in some ways, maybe today's show is not just education and entertainment. In some ways, maybe it's therapy. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Herbal remedies, to me, are one of the, the great gifts of nature to man. And for, like, acute things a lot of times, yeah, we need a doctor, we need modern medicine. But for a lot of things, herbs are a kinder, gentler way to do things. My problem with herbal world is there's so much misinformation, snake oil salesman, hype, and gimmicks. When Western Botanicals contacted me about being a sponsor, God, like nine years ago now, and I investigated them, had my, my folks on the forum check them out, I was so blown away by how, how quality-oriented they were and how honest they were. So I was happy to bring them on as a sponsor. They've been a sponsor for a long time, and they give away their discount membership for free to members of the MSB. So that pays for MSB and, and really makes them even a better deal with 25% off everything they sell. And at Western Botanicals, if it's herbal and legal, you'll find it in the United States. Or you'll find, you'll find it in the United States. You'll find it there, and it will either be organically grown or wildcrafted. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Man, if there was ever a time that you wish you had already stocked up on ammo, I guess it's now. From my understanding, shelves are sold out everywhere. 
I'm well stocked, and uh, one reason is over the years I've bought bulk ammo from bulkammo.com. That way I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't put it off till later. I didn't put it off till the weekend and then not get it done because I had to mow the grass or whatever. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. All the ammo you could want in bulk, check it out. It is there, man, bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main subject. I do want to kind of gloss over about membership. I do have a membership sale going on until this nationwide kind of uh, lockdown's done. However long that goes, how long the sale will go. Uh, discount code is not COVID, though. The discount code is $25, and it gives you $25 off. does apply to recurring. You can become a member today. Use the discounts. That membership will pay for itself multiple times over. Uh, with that, let's get our special guest on the air now. Again, his name is Eddie Garcia. He's got 30 years of experience living off-grid, most of it in the islands of Hawaii. I'm a little jealous about that. This is a guy you're really going to want to check his website out after we're done. And with that, hey, Eddie, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. How you doing today, man? All right, folks, and with that, I want to welcome Eddie to the Survival Podcast. How you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Hey, man, kind of just uh, catch the audience up. Like, you're into all this cool stuff, off-grid living, um, you know, uh, regenerative agriculture, some really cool aquaponics stuff. I looked at some of the videos on your website. It's all really cool. What kind of led your life in that direction in the first place to kind of live the way that you are? Well, for the most part, I pretty much lived really close to nature since the time I was really young. I didn't much take to the regular school system over here in Hawaii. It's a little bit harsh, um, to say the least. And I wanted to be able to be on the giving end of the stick. I wanted to grow food. I wanted to be able to find my own way. And by the time I was 13, 14 years old, I found myself uh, adopted into a Hawaiian family and living off-grid on one of the more remote Hawaiian islands, Molokai. I wound up in a valley where I was 30 miles from the nearest store and 100 years back in time. The family that I grew up with, uh, they're very traditional Hawaiian, speaking Hawaiian in the house and even as far as living out on the fish ponds and wearing malus. So we built bamboo houses that we lived in and uh, catch fish, learn how to fish and hunt and live off the land and living very close to that. Myself, being a surfer and always having this crazy relationship with the ocean, I've always been super involved with the ocean as a... Um, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Unfortunately, I was able to achieve that dream. But part of achieving that dream came out of being able to provide for myself and not have to go to school and be able to surf all day. So it's kind of it's kind of funny, actually. I just wanted to surf all day and do what I wanted to do and really didn't want to listen to what anybody else had to say. So I, living close to nature, out of necessity, a lot of these things came into being through just observing what was going on around me and going, wow, nature has this natural system that works perfect. Maybe I can plagiarize it and put it into a way that I can feed people with it. And then I'm able to be on the giving end of the stick without having to go through the whole process. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like growing up with a, a traditional Hawaiian family off-grid like that? I mean, that sounds like the... Like, in some ways, maybe the perfect adventure for a young man to, to grow up with. Yeah, you could definitely say that my life has been an ongoing, crazy adventure, for sure. I've uh, been able to surf perfect waves in the middle of nowhere by myself. Um, 
family was kind of religious and I'm not super religious. That's one of, was one of the one sides. A lot of the Hawaiians have been, um, sort of, I don't know what the word for it is. Uh, the missionaries came and they sort of integrated with them. So they have a lot of, uh, values that are sort of based on community and gatherings, which kind of existed with their own philosophy. They were very much about gathering together and doing things together, playing games and um, coming out of the culture of like being in the middle of the ocean and you had to bring everything with you. There's very much a mentality of survival and subsistence that's really important to the lions. And so growing up in the middle of that, not choosing to go to the church or to go to school, my job was to go hunting. My job was to go fishing. And that was the way I provided for the family. And that was the part I played into it because I just wanted to surf all day. You know, it is so, the case uh, that like, yeah, you know, kind of hunter gatherer lifestyle is a lot of recreation because you do what needs to be done. And that kind of frees up life to actually, well, to live. It, yeah. A lot of people, friends and stuff, they're like, oh, you may be a certain age, but everyone else spent a lot of their time in school or a lot of their time at work. And so when they got home from work, they basically had to do their laundry and a million other things. So how much time did they actually have to live? Um, living the way that I was able to grow up, I was pretty much able to live every second of every day of my life. And being able to have an ocean that's bountiful with fish and crab and lobster and opihi. And in the mountain here, we have wild access deer. We have wild boar, goat. There's like an endless, uh, you know, you want to say entertainment out of hunting. And it's, it's interesting. I, I have this philosophy that people shouldn't hunt for entertainment. I think that hunting is for survival. You're taking another life and you're subsisting your own life out of it, this whole hunting-gathering mentality. So you sort of become the lion in the countryside. In an area like where our deer have no lion, they don't have a predator, we sort of play a balance in that role. And through many years of like living this life, you find a balance in that. Like, How do I play a part where I'm actually nurturing that herd by picking the weak off um, and keeping them on their toes and not letting them overpopulate and erode the hillside? So, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent on you there. No, it's okay. I tend to go off on pants that way. But, yeah, so being able to get up in the morning and just go, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to go for a surf real quick, or I'm going to go for a hunt because the family needs meat. So I'm going to go up into the mountain with my bow and arrow. I'm going to sit by a tree somewhere. Or I'm going to follow some tracks. Um, whatever I had to do to be creative. After either I came back with something or I didn't, I would go down to the ocean and go surf. And the, after I went for a surf session, if I hadn't caught something in the mountain, I would take my throw net and run along the rocks and look for something to catch with a throw net, some type of fish, um, bring that back. And then at lunch, everyone would get together and paina, pretty much share whatever food they'd caught. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like an average day, sort of. <laughs> Sounds like a great day to me, man. It really does. What are some of your biggest lessons from growing up off grid, you know, in, in, in remote islands like that? It's 
there's, there's so many different lessons I would say when I look at the state of the world and where it's at right now. Um, when 9-11 happened, I don't even think I knew. I was completely oblivious to it, pulling into barrels and eating smoked deer meat and cruising with my friends. Uh, I wasn't really paying attention. So it's real easy to drop off grid and forget about what's going on in the world. Um, right now, it's kind of a, a crazy moment where we're at. So it's like, hmm, uh, what are, what's to be learned out of knowing what self-sufficiency is? Because I choose not to live with my family at an early age and I wanted to just live close to the land and then I wound up uh, with this Hawaiian family. Even though I was Hanai'd into this Hawaiian family, I was sort of on my own. I had my own little house down in this remote valley. And so when I needed electricity, I realized that uh, I could take the car lights, the tail lights out of old cars and hook them up to batteries and I could make electricity as long as I could charge those batteries. Back in the early 80s, there was solar panels that were around, and I was hooking those up with batteries and uh, car lights. And so I realized, wow, I have all my light for my house. I don't really need anything. <laughs> solar panels got a little better, and I had a water line that I hooked up from the waterfall that comes to my house for water, and it creates pressure. So then um, I spent a lot of time at libraries and uh, learning things as much as I could because I chose not to go to school, but I didn't want to be uneducated. So I learned about induction to create electricity. So then I found an old Harley Davidson alternator. I hooked it up to the water wheel and <laughs> voila, my whole electric system changed overnight. No longer was I just running on a tiny little solar cell. Now I had a refrigerator that I could hook up just with an inverter and stereo. So now you come to the middle of the jungle and I'm living like a king. I have everything you could ever imagine if you were the wealthiest person on the planet. Almost like Robinson Crusoe, but right here in this modern day and age and only as isolated as I want to be. So my electricity comes from the sun and water pressure or 15 other creative ways I have up my sleeves because it interested me. Um, my water comes from the waterfall. I use a ceramic filter and I have awesome water. Makes it hard to drink water anywhere else because of the chlorine and fluoride and everything that's put in our water systems. So I think... Uh, because I spent that time learning to spent countless hours learning to throw net and spending that time at the ocean, learning how I could eat sustainably from it. I spent that time in the mountain learning how I can hunt and fish and, um, do these things that would sustain me. I feel like most of my life I've actually been able to live outside of the box. Like, like it's an aquarium I'm looking into I, had, I got fortunate enough to get contracts to be able to travel all over the world as a, a professional surfer, a kite surfer, waterman. And so every country that I would visit, now I would take the things that I learned living off grid and I would share them with these third world countries. And I'd be like, wow, you have tilapia swimming in your stream. Let's build an aquaponic system. Hmm. I didn't do real well in the competitions because half the time I would miss them. <laughs> uh, my clothes would be muddy from working with the kids in the village and trying to teach them something about their surroundings. Uh, but I used that opportunity to also learn. Uh, my span was 20 degrees of the equator, which makes it sort of subtropical to tropical. So I learned as much as I could about what people were growing everywhere in the world there. And it came down to that most of the things people were growing in the world there, we had in Hawaii because of the Pacific voyaging plants. Um, so... 
I talk about hunting and I talk about fishing, but through this all, uh, I was growing food in the ancient traditional practices. The Hawaiians had what we call taro patches, but unfortunately, a lot of them were taught by the university that they sustain these taro patches with chemical fertilizers. Mm. Uh, through watching what was going on and spending countless hours in the old museums, Bishop Museum here, I was actually able to share with my Hawaiian friends and family that their ancestors did it all without fertilizers. And I was actually even able to start people in that direction back to the ancient ways. And a lot of my systems and philosophies are built on these ancient Aupua'a systems and what was done here in Hawaii. I've managed to mix solar panels and water wheels to pump water and add fish into the equation, things that I saw were happening in the stream already, and sort of naturalize these systems into my own systems, these living earth systems that we make. But they're based on really my experience growing up really close to my environment and not wanting to really you know, follow the status quo of what everyone does and what everyone tells you you're supposed to do. So, yeah, I've lived a, a kind of a life like Robinson Crusoe. And back to the question, the question was the lessons I've learned out of this. I find them endless. And in every step I take right now in this day and age, especially with what's going on around us, I live on a 170-acre project that I've set up here on the North Shore of Maui, a valley that has been destroyed and dumped, used as a dump for 100 years by the industrial agricultural industry as well as ignorance from people not understanding that you just can't dump old cars down the hill. They're going to wind up in the river. So in the last few months we've been working on this project, we've been pulling cars out of the river and just an endless amount of trash out of this valley. But we have a pure water source upstream from a spring. We have a giant herd of access deer. And we have an out-of-control population of feral pigs. So we are able in this moment, all of our food and all of our substance, we're 100% self-sufficient in this little project that we're on right now on the North Shore of Maui. So everything that I've learned through all these years on Molokai and live in this remote, now I'm able to do the same thing on Maui, which five minutes down the road, there's civilization instead of two hours. And there's all the resources to be able to farm and ship things out, but also to offer it back to my community. So we hold classes here. We actually do classes on self-sufficiency and survival, regenerative agriculture. We bring people in and we teach them uh, these, this basic understanding, which comes down to observation, patience, and consistency um, with learning to live close to nature and observe that all these answers are around us again and again and again. It just takes a little bit of ingenuity from ourselves. Sorry, I went off on a rant on you there again. But no, it's just great. It's that way to me. I figure you can edit some of it. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to edit any of that. That's, no, it's all great. Um, so I, I guess, like, you're actually hitting on something there that I've talked on a, a lot about, you know, strategic location of, like, a homestead. You, what you're describing is something that um, – uh, David Holgram, co-founder of Permaculture, called the urban rural fringe. So, like, you're kind of rural, but yet you're close to the urban where you can draw from the resources and provide back into uh, the larger population density. And it seems like 
where you are is kind of ideal, man. Like I've said of, you know, wilderness survival, drop me off in, 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 you know, the northern mountains and I'll get by. Drop me off in the tropics and I'll, you come back, I'll be fat sitting by a fire. I mean, like there, there is a certain advantage to being in, you know, tropics, subtropic climates, jungle climates, etc. But I think that the, the concept of trying to locate yourself just far enough outside of, cities and and larger towns so that you're not restricted in what you can do but yet you still can avail yourself of the resources there and aid people there is, is pretty solid advice and it is kind of the little sweet spot you seem to have found on a, a just a beautiful place to be yeah i'm i'm pretty lucky that way and, and particularly where i happen to be in the circumstances But if we look back in uh, history and we look at the way it was set up before the you know late 1800s, societies were set up where there were cities, but there were local farms around them to support them. There were still animals that could be managed and hunted or farmed around these cities that supported them. And we weren't in this global exchange. This global exchange uh, made it where giant companies could come in and buy up these huge tracts of land. And that's why you see corn and soybeans all around you instead of forest and small family farms and homesteads that could support these cities and such. So I, I'm really big on the whole homesteading aspect because earth is home and it's what people should be doing. And we'll never do it if we don't build a relationship to nature and an understanding of where our food comes from. And that's on many levels, like how to treat the soil, how to treat the animals. We're basically given a role of management here on this planet, stewardship. And we're very far from that, very, very, very far from that, from what we've allowed to happen with the giant industries around us. So I think that the idea of like locating a strategic homestead and saying, look, I'm going to be a part of the solution I want to be a part of where how humanity walks forward. And if humanity falls on its face, I want to at least be able to take care of myself and my family, which is me, you might think is a selfish aspect, but if certain families didn't do that, there would be no future. And no, like, that's not right let, now, me, let me never. say something on that for a second. Like People think that's selfish. It's not. Right. Because the only way that I can help my neighbor is to first be stable myself. right? People that are out of resources, don't have what they need, can't take their, care of their own kids or their own parents or their brothers and sisters, they can't take care of their neighbor. So one must first establish the ability to provide self-care, and then one can provide for others. And until you do that, you end up being part of the problem instead of part of the solution. So I'm completely in line with what your thinking is there. Yeah, we're on the same page because you need to be strong to provide for others. And also, I look at the domestication of humanity. Excuse me of that word. I don't mean to offend anyone. No, that, I, I laugh because that's my word. Yeah, they fully dom they're, they're trying to fully domesticate human beings, and it, it, we should be feral. It's just to, to be blunt about it. I completely agree. You got it. You got it. And um, so, yeah, that's really important. You know what I mean? And I, I look at, like, as humanity softens up, we may be our own device that way. So it's really important that people learn – They really learn uh, what's under their feet, what's around them. They start to pay attention. And you would be amazed how many incredible resources there are around you. I live better than anyone I know. And I don't say that out of ego. I say that in a humbleness. My feet may be dirty. 
Um, but, uh, I can't explain to you how I eat the deliciousness of where my food comes from and the, like the rich enriched, I don't even know how to explain it to you. The wealth of being able to wake up in the morning and play a part in your surroundings. There's something that's like a different gauge of wealth that people need to start to understand. And as we're stuck behind our computer desks and our offices or wherever we're at, and we're in playing this game out for other people, what they think we're supposed to do. Just maybe people want to think about how enriching it could be to be with your family on a small homestead and to grow your food and know where your water comes from and know that you're playing a part in the whole bigger picture of stewardship. And that's how like you create communities around that. And I, I, that's where I think the world needs to go in that direction with each other. And there needs to be strong people doing it and great examples. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry, another rant. No, no, dead on, man. Can you talk a little bit about you? You do aquaponics, but you call it living aquaponics. What do you mean by that? So, um, I I call what I do aquaponics, but it, it's really interesting because I've been doing it for probably at least thirty years before the guys in Australia that invented the word aquaponics. And again, it comes back to watching what was happening around me in Hawaii. We grow one of our main foods is taro. It's a root that we grow. Um, and it's grown in Hawaii and Pacific. Nowhere else in the world is it grown this way in wetland patches like rice. So these ponds that you make. And sometimes the ponds are hundreds of ponds in a row up a valley that one starts at the top fed from the river. And they all drain through each other back into the river. Sure. And so these systems were based on earthworms and leaves and mycorrhizal cultures by the ancient Hawaiians. They grew certain plants around them. They'd take the leaf waste and the matter from that, they'd rest the patch in between it, and all the nutrients for the taro they grew would come out of the fish in the river. They would come from the natural environment that was happening. So as a kid watching this going on, I'd start to pile leaves under the tree and pile all the taro up, and the places where the earthworms ate it down, it was just amazing. So I was like, wow. Hmm. Then I'd see fish up the river, and I noticed the rivers that had more fish, the taro grew better. So I started to pull some of the native fish, hole hole um, and oopu, and I started to put them in the taro patch above the lower taro patch. Wham, my taro was twice the size. I was getting all these free nutrients out of it. So I started to do that in aquariums. I'm, I'm talking I'm seven, eight years old and putting uh, floaters on the top of my aquariums and growing spinach and telling my parents, look, uh, my plants are, my fish are growing this right here and it's filtering the water for them. Look how clear it is. So for me, it was real obvious. And then I, it's interesting how I wound up here on Maui too is I was doing all these farm projects on this other island where no one sees it. So you're doing it and you're doing it and you're doing it. And meanwhile, there's this whole movement of the world of aquaponics and permaculture. And you really didn't even know anything about it because you were actually doing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so Whole Foods manager came over to buy a bunch of stuff from one of the larger farms that I made. I was doing watermelon and lots of things on a large scale. And she was like, you need to come do a presentation, a farm thing on Maui. And I came and I set up one of my systems for an ag fair. Uh, and basically I say one of my systems, we're talking about what we call, you guys call aquaponics. But when I looked at the first aquaponics systems I seen, there was other people who had them set up there. And I came with my mobile system, which was completely alive. Every component of it was alive. There's earthworms, there's crustaceans, there's mycorrhizal fungi. And all these things are the things that grow around me in this environment. 
where if you have a garden, you really aren't keeping it out of there unless you're on this constant mission to keep it sterile. Mm -hmm. And that's what most of the aquaponics systems were doing. They were actually mimicking hydroponics. And I have to tell people, and no disrespect to it, a lot of people are into hydroponics, and if you manage it just perfect, you can do some really good things with that. Grits uh, for some small spaces. But we're realizing that you can replace all of that with aquaponics and not have to use any of the chemical inputs. You actually raise fish. Now you have a source of fish that you can eat as well. So you've like multitasked. Not only that, so I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. I'm going to back up and I'm going to go back into how these systems were developed for me. As I watched uh, the fish eat the food, the leftover taro I threw in the top patch and poop, I could see that the number the numbers were rising. I had to prove it, so I went into the library. I learned about what nitrates were and ammonia and what things played a process in like making that happen. So there's these different bacteria that live on the roots of plants that can process this and make it uh, clean for the fish and useful for the plants. So non-toxic for the fish and an actual fertilizer source for the plants. So putting this together, I, I created these systems that were based on nature. Then I came to this ag fair on Maui, and I realized, wow, people have this thing they call aquaponics, and they're doing what I'm doing. But they're mimicking a hydroponic system. So they're trying to make it more sterile. So it's actually more prone to failure. If it crashes, it'll crash hard, and it has no way of repairing itself. It has no internal immune system, no gut bacteria of its own. So in a sense, it's, it's, it has a flaw to it. Hydroponics are notorious for this because they're this sterile system that's dependent on the chemicals. And if something gets out of balance, you have to clean everything else, strip it down, and start over again. A living or system, if it goes through a problem, it will eventually correct that problem and continue to thrive on its own. I have systems that I've left for years without touching them, forgot about them, and come back and there's still food growing there and tons of healthy fish, and I haven't even fed them. I've learned to leave lights on the tanks at night for a certain amount of hours, and all the bugs that would be eating the plants hit the water and the fish eat them. So I have a natural protein source. So basically, these systems that I've developed have come from watching this happen, taking notes, crossing my T's and dotting my I's so that I can create a conducive body of work that's actually a living system. So that's where, um, while we're here on Maui, after that ag fair, I realized what I was doing off the grid was very needed in this day and age, and I needed to start sharing it with people. So I didn't know much about computers or social media or anything like that. And about seven or eight years ago, I really started the journey to step it up and put it out there, some of these systems I've been building for 20 years, and start to get involved with community gardens and workshops and start spreading it to my community, but also being traveling with kite surfing every country that I went to, that's what also inspired me, what I was talking about earlier in the game, now to go back to these countries with what I learned and say, hey, here's a living earth system, set it up for your village, and let's see what you can make for your families out of it. So... It's this. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a rant no, on this. So no, no, great. Um, so you got But basically, these living systems take the things that live around them, what we call IMOs, indigenous microorganisms, and the things that flourish in each individual environment. So a living or system that I do here in Hawaii and one that I do on the northeastern coast of the United States are totally different. Totally the same, but totally the different. They work on what works 
in that environment. In the northern climate, I'll use uh, trout and blue uh, bluegill, and I'll use different species of earthworms and different species of mycorrhizal cultures that go with the plants of those areas. So they're based on these different areas supporting the system that you grow. So sort of an outdoor aquaponic system that also taps into the ground around it and becomes a fertility hub for your entire surrounding homestead. So the systems I build, for the most part, it's raining here. I don't know how much that affects you. No, that's all right. Okay. So the systems that we build here off-grid, they're, they're contained, and we use them for small in-classroom. We use them for um, urban settings to teach people in cities that with a 600-gallon tank, they can grow 40 pounds of tilapia a month and 100 pounds of produce, completely self-sufficient. But these same systems in Hawaii here, we tap them into the larger scale, and we do acreage. We make 250,000-gallon aquaponic systems, and we take on 5 to 10 acres at a time, and all of the food we grow is grown from the fish waste, a giant in-the-ground aquaponic system, and it nurtures the surrounding area. So but it's in these larger, in these larger systems, producing. though, in, in these larger systems, though, you're, you're doing more of an earth-based system there, right? So, like, these smaller systems are more, I think, from what you're describing, and correct me if I'm wrong, these smaller systems are more what people think of when they think of aquaponics. We have some sort of a grow bed, a media, ebb and flow, something like that coming out of a, a, a contained tank, where these larger, you know, like multi-acreage or even partial acreage systems are more like in-ground ponds growing in the soil, using the resources being created more of a, of like a... Similar to a lot of what Asian aquaculture is than typically what someone sees in their head when they think of the term aquaponics. Is, is kind of that what you're saying? Well, yes and no. I'm okay. saying both. I built a complex aquaponics system that's completely modular. It's off the ground. It has um, uh, a lot of different vortexes that bring up the oxygen content in it. Sure. So it's run off solar pumps or electricity. But it is what people think of. Is if you looked at it, you'd think, wow, that's an aquaponic system, a gotcha. thriving aquaponic system. You wouldn't know the difference of what's working inside it until you started to look and seen five different types of earthworms in it, until you've seen a white film of mycorrhizal culture on the medium. Okay. But when I talk about taking that system and incorporating it on the larger scale, all I have to do is connect a tube to the ground. Okay. All I have to do is take the, the biomass I'm growing in those tanks and start to pile it up in a compost pile next to it. Sure. All I have to do is let the worms that uh, are growing overflow out of it into the surrounding area so it's like a fertility hub. So we've done this in different stages. First, the modular aquaponic system, either tiny for your kitchen or on a larger scale. But then the next system we were doing and we have been doing is we've been taking swimming pools we turn the swimming pools, we get rid of the chlorine so they stop poisoning sure. all the bees and the bats in your area um, and letting the chlorine in the system. We redo the swimming pool, we turn it into an aquaponic system where there's big food beds next to it, modular. Then you can swim in it as well. But then we take all the affluent waste from the fish and we pump that out into the surrounding landscape. So now this quarter acre lot property with a swimming pool on it is now farming and their entire landscape is supported out of the aquaponic system because it's a little larger. Now the third step of that is 
the same thing on a farm, an ugly farm, monoculture crop that's destroyed the ground. They can't grow there anywhere. We come in. We build a big pond. We bring in earthworms. We bring in certain plants to rebuild the soil. And now we incorporate that same system on a much larger scale. And now that's the living earth systems on a larger scale. And some of it sometimes will look like these Asian aquaculture aspects you're talking of. Sure. But there are always from hub that, in, that uh, actually involves a lot more science than that in it, uh, but working with nature. Gotcha, man. That, that's awesome. I think that's one of those things. I was watching some of your stuff on your website. I think for people to really get their head around this, they're going to definitely, when they're done with this interview, want to go check out your website, which is livingearthsystems.com, and take a look at this because a lot of that stuff is very visual. I have kind of a self-serving question for you in the way you're doing things, and you're mentioning things like swimming pools. I've tried to do a lot with uh, water here on my property. I have a property that sits on a very ancient ocean bed of limestone. The, the soil depth on my property runs from as shallow as two inches to a deep spot is four to, up to 11 inches. In those locations, when I say 11 inches is the deepest spot, if you dig down 11 inches into a reasonably decent clay loam, when I say you hit rock, I do not mean that you hit pieces of rock. I mean that you hit slab rock that can be pulled up for about a foot depth as chunk from, with, a, with a very large excavator. And below that, you have absolutely impregnable, you could make sarcophaguses out of it, limestone. So putting in-ground ponds here has been difficult. So I've done a lot with aquaponics. My biggest issue then, though, is any type of sump trying to get low to low down is very, very difficult. So I have a like I have a 5,000 gallon uh, 12 foot by 12 foot pond. It was built out of four by fours and a pond liner. It's gorgeous. It looks like something to be in Mr. Miyagi's backyard. But you have an issue then with returning water to the source, if you see what I mean, without having a deep sump. Have you dealt with any situations like that? And if so, how? Uh, yeah, we deal with situations like that all the time in lots of different areas. And we have the lava fields. We have quite a few sure. systems built up there. Um, and it's just about being creative. Do you have, um, what is I have almost no elevation. I also have almost no elevation. I mean, it is, it, there's, there's some contour to the land, but it is flat. It is really, really flat. So if you were going with, Hey, you know, set the pond down low, move water up, bring it back down. Yeah. I would love to do that. I just don't have the land flow for that at all. Um, I'm sitting on a saddle plateau and I'm pretty much center of that saddle plateau uh, I have about three acres, but about two acres of the property is like under management. And that is, I would say, less than a foot across, you know, a hundred of, of fall. It's very flat. Yeah, well, um, you know, on, on another note, uh, since we're doing this interview together and you can, uh, I will, if you send me a uh, topographical, we okay. do that regularly for people we do a remote and we do places where we come on site. But um, I'll take a look at it for you and I'll let you know on that. But your, to answer your question on that, um, there's a lot of creative ways we've gotten by, it, whether it's building something up on a frame, whether it's lifting something up with blocks and making a medium underneath it, or whether it's been bringing in a couple dump loads or moving some of the material on the property mm -hmm. and coming up with a higher surface that your pond sits in so you can have it on the scale you want. And uh, what are your issues with? You know, you want to have larger than the 5,000 gallons or you just well, want to I have mean, a big I enough sump? 
underneath the 5,000 gallons. Yeah, and it's more that. Like right now, the way I designed that, I didn't even, at this point, I, I, I built that. That's something you could take a look at later, but it's basically this beautiful feature pond. I have tons of fish in it, tons of plants in it. Um, I just accepted that. I wanted something nice like that, so I built that for myself. I've got garden beds all around it. What we do now kind of is like in our, you know, our spring's coming. I'll get tons of surface vegetation there uh, with like water lettuce and other plants that I'm technically not supposed to grow. Uh, and then we'll just take those right off the pond and mulch into the gardens with that. So that's one way we move that, that biomass and all of that fertility from the pond. But I had like an aquaponic system set up, for instance, where I had two, two 330 gallon IBCs. And because of the inability to drop a sump, it moved the, all the food beds really high, and it made it very difficult to maintain. So it wasn't that logistically we couldn't do it. It was that it made it to where, like, I have a 50-foot aviary, 50-foot by 10-foot aviary, about 9-foot ceilings. But by the time we ran, so I ran uh, flow-through wicking beds in there. So that main heart aquaponic system that I had run at the time ran through a series of 12 wicking beds, And that water ran through the bottom of those beds, and then the top of them was soil, right? So it was soil-based aquaponics, if there is such a thing. And it worked really good, except, except, right, so except because of the height of the system and so little fall to work with, those beds were so high that it was very difficult. You know, you have a six-foot pepper plant sitting at the top of a three-foot tank. So you got you that plant's nine feet in the air. You see what I'm saying? Like, that made it very difficult So I changed some things and, and, and moved some things around. I have a system now that's running on a 300-gallon tank, and it's running a 300-gallon Rubbermaid tank, like the ones cows drink out of. So I was able to right. get that 10 inches in the ground where it is. So that system's pretty nice. I have wicking beds run off of that, and they're like waist height. I'm just thinking on larger scale, maybe not even for myself, but like somebody in my situation – you know, what can they do to deal with, you know, rock or inability to go in ground for whatever reason, code, whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say um, the sumps don't always have to be um, on such a deep level, too. What I've had to do for some areas, if as long as I can make their bed level, and a lot of people like where they can put their hands in their beds at four feet. Absolutely. Like waist high, their yeah. beds in front of them. Um, what I do is I do a longer, a linear sump. A lot of people don't realize that your sump doesn't have to be deep. You can run your sump at 10 inches and just dig a trench, a 10 inch trench that to make sure you have a certain amount of capacity <clears throat> for your sump, what you need, and just spread the water signature out linear rather than, um, I've, I've done that in a few of my sumps. And what I actually do on one of my long sumps is I grow Azola. And the sump is actually right underneath the grow beds. So it's a linear um, uh, liner. On a, I think that's a 12-inch uh, sump, and it's underneath the grow beds. Gotcha. So everything comes down from, from the pond, comes from the pond, hits the beds, comes from the sump, goes into the pond, and then comes back to the sump underneath the beds there. So if you think about just changing your signature of how your water sets down there, It all depends where you're at. Again, uh, each each it's almost like each individual setting has its answers that are there, but you sort of need to again look around you and see what's available for you there. 
sounds like you're being pretty creative with what you have already. Yeah, I've got, so just to give you kind of, because I doubt you've seen kind of my setup, I've got two, I call them Miyagi Ponds from Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid, because that's, that's what they look like. They're timber framed. Nice. Um, I have one that's 8x8, eight eight, and that one was like, we built a platform for a rain tank and decided not to put the rain tank in. So I was like, I can just keep, keep going, come up to about four foot, put a cap rail on it, drop a liner in it, and I've got a pond. Will it work? I don't know, but I'm already halfway there, so why don't I try it and find out? So we built that one, and it's, it's a little small, really, um, but where it's tucked in, it kind of what would be fit there. So once I built that one, and I had it for a couple of years, the biology is really solid in it. Everything works. It's very productive. I've got catfish in it as big as my arm, and they're all like little cats I caught out at the lake and brought home and tossed in there. I've got different species of sunfish in there that are bigger than my hand. I need to actually start harvesting some, not eating them just because of the mass of them. And I was so last spring, I was like, I want to do this in a bigger way. And I had a really great spot to do it where I get eastern sun and western shade. So it gets a break in that are really brutal summers. So we built a 12-footer out there, and then I built – it's it's actually pretty cool. It's like um, four garden beds, and they're about 30 inches high – They're just regular soil beds, and they're built out of landscape timbers, and they're like on right angles, so they're like 12 foot across the back, four foot wide, and eight foot across the the front, and like um, you know, kind of right angles surrounding it with like four gateways going into the pond. It looks awesome, but it would be cool to take that pond, that big pond now, and then figure out some way to do more with it. And one thing I have to be mindful of is anything where water's low. Unless I really want it, and going back into my pond, I wouldn't. I have to make sure ducks can't get into it. I have a flock of about 25 ducks that we do for uh, maintaining the land, pest control, all of that stuff. And in a big pond, great. They're, they're a part of the ecosystem. I don't need 20 ducks taking a dump in my 4,000-gallon pond every day for sure. Um, so I do have to kind of keep them Oops. out. But if I can get some kind of a sump in somewhere, then that water can do more work, return to the sump, and then you just run two pumps then. You run sump back to your pond. Because um, the the top of That's that right. pond is at about forty two forty six inches from ground level, right? So like if you do anything above it, you know you're climbing a ladder to work on it, I guess. And I've actually I've actually kicked that idea around too. So I've got those two plus I've got another one built out of um, this is you know before I really thought about it, but I'm not going to tear it apart now. Out of the more like stainless not stainless. Um, galvanized steel stock tanks. So it has three right. six-by-two ovals at the top of it. They're up on some center blocks for elevation. And then it's got two 470-gallon six-foot round ones downgrade from it. It goes from the three are plumb level, that drops to the mid-tier round tank, and that drops to the bottom, and it recirculates. And I grow um, neocardania shrimp, which are really tiny, like expensive aquarium shrimp, outdoors through our winters in those oval tanks along with minnows. And that's my main feed system. So those minnows feed all the fish in my big ponds and all the fish in my round ponds, except for the koi and the goldfish, because they don't really eat minnows. So like that whole, and then I got a set, so the other system I said, it's a more conventional aquaponics. It's a 300 gallon tank running into two 50 gallon ebb and flows in four, four by four wicking beds that it does flow through with. And so I have a lot of systems running like that, but you know, there, that's always been the challenge is depth of a sump. Because it's 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 no joke. I mean, it's you tell people rock. I know you understand rock. That's why I ask you. You're from Hawaii. The whole damn thing is a rock, right? Yeah. You tell people rock, and they're like, "Oh, it's rocky." No, it's it is freaking Mother Earth. Like you, 
I had a guy with a 30-ton excavator try to put in a more conventional, like, you know, just a small in-ground pond. And once he got through that um, chunk rock, it was he's like, I'm not tearing my machine up on this. I, I'm not doing it. This is a 36,000-pound machine. And he's like, I'm done. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not pounding this anymore. <laughs> yeah, so for that Limestein, there is a good jackhammer that you can get down a couple feet into with that yeah. if you need to. Yeah. Um, and I can send you some. I can send you some specs on that as well. Um, after this conversation, let's make sure we stay in touch, and I'll, yeah. I'll share with you whatever I can. Uh, yeah. for your let's project. not get too specific really to me, right? Yeah, on air. Let's not get too yeah. specific. Let's serve the audience a little bit better. So, like, what would you advise people to do to get started? Like, do you think like it's a good idea for people to start playing with hydro or aqua and putting in small systems? Just like learn the basics like that first, so they understand the biology and what have you, and what resources do you have for people that want to do stuff like this? Okay, so I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rant on here for a second because um, what should they be doing to, like, as their gateway drug for it? Yeah, that's what I mean. What can they get their hands great, in? Great it's kind of interesting. It. You've obviously had it, and you're pretty addicted right now, and we can tell, like, once the bug gets you, it gets you. Once you start a little bit and you've grown your first little green thing and you realize everybody has a green thumb, People forget. They think, oh, I don't have a green thumb. I can't do that. But once they realize they can, that is like the most inspiring first part of the journey. For me, is when I stuck a, an, an apple seed in a milk container when I was a kid. Apples don't grow here. They actually do grow here. You just got to find the right spot. Um, but the idea of looking at someone like you, you're in a totally different place. You're doing a lot of the things I'm doing. You have, you're raising the fish and the other uh, food sources for your fish. I also raise minnows and shrimp, uh, both for eating and for feeding to the other stuff. But um, also for the aquarium trade, we're trying to teach people that every aspect of your small homestead also should have some aspect of bringing in economical value. So we're super multifaceted into the income streams of our small farms. So when I look at that and I look at what you're doing, we also have Muscovy ducks. On a larger scale of the bigger ponds, they add fertilizer into the whole thing. Yep. Like you say, on a smaller scale, you need to keep them out of there. But the duck eggs are great, better than a chicken egg, and they don't eat everything up, and they just completely annihilate all the slugs anywhere. So like people starting to look at what other people are doing, to be inspired by like what you're doing and to get the bug, and... Um, to, yeah, just to dive in. And I think once people have had made any little tiny success of just watching the seed sprout and knowing that they need to be patient with it, they need to be consistent with it, but they also need to pay attention. So our core values are observation, consistency, and patience. So observation is it, the pot might be wet already, and you keep watering it because you don't know, and then you give it root rot. Or you might not have watered it, and it's dry. You really just need to let people know to take an extra step to really look at it and have a method, a methodology of testing it or whatever it is as they, as they go into it. And then they need to be consistent. If they are watering it, they need to need, water it consistently when it needs it. And then they need to be patient and not keep digging into it, waiting for it, for it to sprout up. Some things take a week. Sometimes things take a month. When you're building an aquaponic system, you need to like do it slowly. You need to put your fish in. You need to build up a medium, just like our intestines have a gut bacteria. So we need to build up these things and nurture it. 
So patience is like super important in this whole process. So, and it will teach you patience. So that's, I guess, the best advice I think of that I probably have for that is to tell people to jump in. And once you're on the journey uh, and you have the need or the, or the want or the desire to any aspect of it, to know where your electricity comes from, where your food comes from, to know you're safe in the event of a catastrophe, to know you can provide for your family and for yourself, um, I think that all starts with jumping in and starting on that journey. And it's going to catch you and it's going to drag you further and further down the road. And when it does, when you're down the road, just like I'm sure you feel right now, exactly in this moment, you know there's some food in your yard. You know there's uh, stuff in your tanks. And you know if you need to, there's stuff you can share with your neighbors. Yep. And you can be part of a support yep. system when if the shit really hits the fan. Excuse my... Uh, no, there, no uh, you're, allowed, you're uh, allowed to say everything on here except the F word. Regular cuss words are fine. Yeah. <laughs> Colorful metaphors. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, as, as we're, yeah, so that's that's what I say. And as far as um, resources, you know, there's a giant movement towards people getting pissed off at how this planet has been treated. And I don't know that everybody in this audience necessarily um, will uh, see the same base with that because I don't know where we're all at coming from the world. But whether you believe in global warming, you do, you don't, whatever's going on, we do need to know the fundamentals and how to take care of ourselves and how to take care of our families, no matter what your political views are on it. So, um, you know, I may be a bleeding heart for this planet because I live so close to it and I see what's happening where other people may not see that actually going on right now. And there's a lot of bad stuff happening on the planet um, right now. So, yeah, resources are going to wind up all around you and you're as soon as you reach out anywhere you're going to see that there's like-mindedness coming to be on this planet right now and people are starting to realize man we've been in the power in the hands of other people for too long controlling our destiny we need in some sense to take it back or have some semblance of control or you know understanding that what we have is ours um and i think that those resources are all around you as you reach out anywhere but I think you could type into the computer regenerative agriculture, permaculture. Um, as far as what I do personally, people have asked me a lot of the time for resources on how to make a natural swimming pool or how to do some of the stuff we do. I haven't found it anywhere. I don't know others that are bringing it together in a conducive body of work. So the best resources I can give you for what I'm talking to you about our, our nonprofit, which is Regenerative Education Centers, that's recenters.org, or livingearthsystems.com, which is our website, and we network through there as much as we can. You can reach out to us and ask us exactly what you're looking for, what aspect you want to play in it, and we will direct you wherever we can within our community. Um, uh, but I don't know exactly how to make like just just a resources offhand. I think there's a lot of things online, but you just have to start asking the questions and know that you want to take that journey towards this uh, self-sufficiency. That, hopefully that's not too long of a well, That makes sense. That, I, it's actually a great answer. I was more in like, what is the person's first project type thing? Like, you know, it, do, do you think maybe that a really great first step might just be a simple aquaponics system, something built on stock tanks or IBCs or something like that? So I actually have like a little thing that I recommend right off the bat to everybody, and I think you should introduce yourself to earthworms. Strangely enough, we're talking about aquaponics, but they're an integral part of the type of aquaponics that I share. Absolutely. So I think to have a small worm bin 
Earthworms, super important, I think, to be doing some home composting. So realize the resources you have with your newspaper and cardboard and all your food scraps and yard waste that's being wasted and thrown away. Those are all incredible resources. So what I like to tell people first is start to get familiar with all the gold they're throwing away to start to learn how to manage what they have already. And then that journey starts. And then I usually start to start them off with a worm in. And then second, it's an aquarium, an aquarium with a few guppies in it that you can learn how to take care of them. And you can understand that it's not rocket science and that you can do it. It's a success rate having your pretty little guppies in there. And then eventually you stick a little float on the top of it and you grow a couple plants in a seed in a basket. You watch the roots come down, you watch the fish prosper, and you take those basil leaves or whatever it is you're growing in those little pots and you use it in your salad and you share it with your family. To my opinion, once you've done that, you are hooked. You're on the journey. You've had a success and you've been able to start it with these very small things. We offer a lot of these things on our website, free classes. We also have classes you can buy and stuff like that. But there is a lot of resources out there to start that journey just about anywhere. You can uh, just type in earthworms and earthworm culture or whatever it is. Uh, again, we offer a lot of those resources within our websites and stuff too. So, yeah, that's that would be my suggestion. A small earthworm bin, maybe a little bit of a uh, – we'll even send a free PDF out to people who want a little step-by-step how to compost their kitchen scraps and their cardboard and all their yard waste, not wasting it. These are like the very first steps I find that really nurture you on the whole journey to being hooked. Definitely 10-4 on the earthworms for composting. Most people do not produce enough waste to do proper composting in the way that people typically think of, with you know turning it, doing a 21- or 24-day method, um, because you need kind of like – a cubic yard of material and what happens is people make these compost piles and they just keep throwing and turning and throwing and turning and they it's like making a cake and you get the cake half baked and you open the oven and you pull it out and you add a little more batter and you stick it back in and then you get the cake baked a little more and you open it up and you put it back in but with worms they they solve that problem we do a lot with worms here in our aquaponic system mainly our our compost the ducks and the few little chickens we have take care of it we have just We have, like, lazy man's compost. We take, like, cinder blocks and make a big pit so that they don't spread everything out. We throw everything in there until it's full, and then we make another one and leave the other one alone. And when they stop playing with it, we put a tarp. We had to put a tarp over it. We have this beautiful compost with no work. And, and I think people need to be creative unless you're producing enough material to do typical composting. You, you don't ever seem to really get a good breakdown. You end up with anaerobes with the way you're describing it there. No matter what you get, your worm population will adapt and, and adjust and, and, and take care of it for you. And, God, the fertility, like, is unbelievable. Worms are one of the greatest gifts I think the planet has ever received, man. I mean, there is a saying, I can't remember who said it, but some author that said, like, every life form eventually will pass through the gut of the worm. And, man, there's some, there's yes. some validity there. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I wanted to actually remark on that. Two things. When you mentioned actually a cubic yard. Yeah. It's really funny. One of the things we push, one of our most popular classes is how to make a cubic yard of soil, uh, with nothing from, but from what you have. And we teach people how to take just a few buckets of sand, um, wood chips, leave, leaves from their yard and yard waste, grass clippings, 
their food waste, all of their cardboard, all of their newspapers, and put it in a system. It's not only earthworms. It's um, copepods, amphipods. Mm. It's uh, millipedes. It's a bunch of creatures all chewing it up together. And we teach what we call a cold composting class. A lot of people aren't familiar. The compost that you're talking about where it needs turning and everything, that's a compost most people are familiar with. This is a term called thermophilic. Thermophilic is a chemical process of a nitrogen to carbon ratio that causes it to heat up to temperatures upward of 200 degrees. You actually need to spin it so that it doesn't catch fire and keep the oxygen in it so that it composes properly. And when you talk about a half-baked cake, you are so right on the money with that because that's a huge problem. Not only that, but it, it puts a lot of methane into the air. It puts a lot of carbon in the air. We don't realize that in nature, there is no compost made this way. No. Nature does not do this. Nature lays it down, allows the microbes, it allows the fungi, it allows all these creatures together to eat it down, and it doesn't release these gases into the atmosphere. It also makes this fertilizer a much long-term, much more long-term fertilizer that's bonded so that it doesn't leach out of the soil. Um, so yeah, there's so many advantages to being able to cold compost rather than hot compost, which when we think of having to turn these piles and everything, guess what? It's a lot easier. It's a lot more productive and you're right on the money just naturally and intuitively you finding your, you found your way there already. And so we teach people strategically how to come to that. And it's really amazing. Like, there's a lot of crossover synergy here in this conversation. So I'm really sorry. I just wanted to. And the one other thing I want to mention on the earthworm comment is one of my things that I've been doing for years, and I think one of the one of the things that separates me from other people a little bit is my passion for earthworms. <laughs> All of my earthworm bins have multiple species. As a small child, I, I've read many books on earthworms. And years later in the picture, I actually found that Darwin spent the last years of his life studying earthworms. And there's a book I recommend. It's called Darwin's Notes on Earthworms. And it was the last work of his life. He spent years and years studying these fields and watching. The, in fact, that quote you mentioned earlier, I think is out of there uh, with Darwin talking about the worms with their gut material will have moved through the planet so many times. Or yeah. it may have been inspired by that. But I, I highly recommend that, and I cannot stress the importance of earthworms to our planet and what they do and how bad their populations have been destroyed by uh, just bad agricultural practices and bad management in general of our topsoil. Very cool, man. Well, hey, you know, I've had a blast having you on today. I think we'll definitely have you back on. I think we can talk about a lot of different subjects, um, especially if we get to know each other a little bit better and each other's backgrounds. Um, I usually, I'll, I'll apologize to you, I usually do way more um, research on a guest and know more about them uh, before I bring them on. Uh, between the time you filled out your form and now the world ended. So I've been, you know, working right. probably more with the media side of things than I normally do. And it's taking me some from my land and I don't like that. Um, but I've been really trying to push this week to make sure that I roll up early enough in the day that I can go out and get more stuff done. Cause it is for me in my temperate climate, this is the time you plant now or you're losing your window, right? So um, right, I'll, I'll right. definitely have you back on because I think we can kind of just riff on 
a lot of different systems, and it, it's really cool to meet someone that you know kind of is you know an ecological brother type thing. Even though we probably disagree on yeah. some policy issues, I think the core issue of like how things work and and the damage to the planet. Like you brought up global warming, and my problem with that issue, I think it's the most divisive environmental issue there is, and we don't even need to talk about it to fix problems because. The sad thing is, like, there are stupid people you cannot get through. I know some people get, you know, twisted when you say it that way, but there are. There's people like, but there's probably 10% of people. There's probably 90% of people that if you say, here's the environmental problems, and you don't drag anybody's politics into it, and you talk about things like right. soil degradation, you talk about stream runoff, you talk about the pollution that's being done with mercury and sulfur. You know, I grew up in coal country in Pennsylvania. Right. I've seen places, like one place near us we called the Black Desert. is a slush dump where they dump all the waste rock that's got coal dust on it, but it's not got enough coal content to use. And this has been, and that place was there in the 30s, and it's still a black desert. Like, nothing will grow there. Finally, now, like... Some pine and stuff is beginning to pioneer. Like, so I think you can unify people with an environmental message. You don't need to worry about anybody's politics or tax policy or anything like that. We just know that, like, excess nutrient running into groundwater, destroying our oceans, that's not good. Like, anybody that disagrees with that, right. you might as well just stop. Like, because there's no, you know, I don't believe in it or whatever. Okay, well, I'm sorry you don't believe in fact. Whatever, man. I'm going to go on and do what I'm going to do. So, man, I really enjoyed having a conversation with you today. Yeah, man, we're going to make sure uh, – uh, make you got my email address, so let's just start yeah. doing some sharing. Send me any pics of your property or any yeah. details, and then I'll happily share whatever I can with you. Um, and we're I have, a, I have a lot of things going on. I've done articles in uh, Surfer Magazine. I have worms that actually eat styrofoam. I've cracked that code. Um, I have atmospheric waterers I have invented. Um, I have a lot of stuff going on that you may not know about, and we're on a push right now. Because uh, we actually have an advertising budget, and we really want to get our message out there. We feel like we have some stuff that's crucial right now that can really help a lot of people. Um, we're also working on a really big project on Maui. I mentioned that in the thing where we're pulling all the stuff and cleaning this riverbed. So we And we're making a film. We have a, a budget for our film, and we're in the process of filming for a year. Um, these things are going to be shopped around the film festival. And because I was a professional athlete, I have a little bit of pull in that direction. Um, so we're utilizing all that, and this is the moment for us right now, this next year, that we're really pushing hard on it. So, yeah, anytime you, you or anything you could do for us in that shape or form of putting it out there and sharing or sending or anything else I could do with you, I'd be really stoked on it because I am really glad to see that even though we sit in different places, we do are like another brother of that mentality. Absolutely, man. So, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up with you today. We're over an hour on the, on the interview now. But yes, tell, tell people again about your website. I think you actually mentioned two of them, so tell them about both of them. And I'll make sure that links to your site and any other resources that we've mentioned today are in the show notes for people. And just a reminder for those that might be listening to this podcast somewhere out in the future instead of right after it was published, this is episode 2625. You can go by the Survival Podcast and pull it up. But uh, the websites people should check out to learn more about your work, man. LivingEarthSystems.com. That's a livingearthsystems.com as well as recenters.org. They can find us on Instagram with um, Living Earth Systems on Instagram or recenters.org on Instagram. And they can find out who I am in the surf world by Maui New Earth on Instagram. Cool. Those man. are just some ways to find out who cool. we are and what we're doing. 
So also, you guys sent me kind of a litany of resources, including your YouTube and Instagram and all that other stuff. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. So guys, I know a lot of you guys listen on like iTunes and Stitcher or whatever, and you don't actually come by the site often. There is so much to learn from what uh, Eddie's doing. I really recommend you come by, check out the links, check out the website today. And Eddie, man, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. I wish it wasn't the middle of the apocalypse, but this too shall pass, and uh, I think you and I will do just fine through it. Yeah, awesome, Jack. Great uh, being here. Thanks for having me. Um, and everybody else, thanks for hearing what I have to say. Aloha. So I really enjoyed that interview, and I do think it is somewhat therapeutic to – to talk about planning the future right now and planning what you're going to do because I think you know people can get into the you know mode of like I can't even go out and have a burger and a beer with my friends and you kind of feel like this is the world we live in now it's the world we live in now for a time for a time this is a great time to get your head around what you're going to do with the amazing opportunity life's got in front of you It really is. Like, it doesn't mean everything's sunshine and roses. It doesn't mean there won't be any hardship in this. But as I keep saying, the hardship we're facing compared to the hardship that our, our grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents faced, it, it's, it's pretty melancholy compared to, you know, what they went through. We're going to be okay. This generation simply has never really been tested. When I say this generation, I mean all the people that are kind of in charge today from, you know, boomer down to, uh, Down to, down to the Gen X, uh, Gen X, the Gen Y, right? Millennials, Gen Y, Gen X, tweeners, all of us. The people that are in charge of things today have never really been tested. Not, not to like a global level, not to, uh, affects everyone level. We're being tested now. We'll be better for it in the end. With that, let's go ahead and, uh, Reminds you, though, another way in addition to becoming a member that you can help support this show is to uh, to do your online shopping via tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Today's item of the day is one I brought around a lot recently. I'm probably going to do something on hydro tomorrow. Um, like the basic, simple, easiest stuff you can do to start growing food with hydro. I know we talked a lot about aquaponics today. They're living systems. In some ways, I prefer aquaponics um, from a, a logistical standpoint, from a biological standpoint. But when it comes to simplicity and guaranteed results for people, especially right now, I'm so glad I got into hydroponics. So the item of the day today is the General Hydroponics Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs. Uh, I've got some questions about those recently, too. I'll cover them on tomorrow's episode. But these are the easy button for planting your seeds and getting stuff to grow. They really are. They are. I have had such good results with them. And, uh, yes, you can reuse them. I'll tell you how you can reuse them with some things tomorrow. Uh, but if you want to get started with hydro or even any kind of deep water aquaponics, uh, there are other ways to do it for less money, but these are not expensive and they are flipping awesome and they just work great. Check out my write-up on them today, but remember you can always support the show and no matter what you buy, as long as you start your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. Um, it's Kenny Rogers week because Kenny passed away recently. We're kind of playing homage to Kenny Rogers. And as I've said many times this week now, if you're at my age bracket, like your life in some way was impacted by Kenny Rogers' music just because it was so prominent in the 70s and 80s. It just, it just was. Like you couldn't get away from it. it some of the, some of the first crossover music. They didn't call it that at the time, but you know, you're talking like a country artist being played on a pop station, like that type of crossover music. Definitely some of that. Um, John Adam, who's basically the music program director for the show, put together a list and said, pick, you know, five for this week. 
He didn't put this song on though. I went off grid and, and grabbed my own my own song for today. This is uh, probably one of Kenny Rogers' biggest hits. It was definitely a mega hit for him, uh, not just in the United States but overseas as well. It was number one in the UK for a while. Uh, Coward of the County, and I, I picked that song for a few reasons today. One, I think people do head toward nostalgia when 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 you know when they have stress on them at the kind of level we're at today. Like, you know, my wife's watching I Love Lucy, Lucy reruns right now, which is something a lot of people did after 9-11 as well, you know. And Coward of the County, that song itself is from kind of a, a simpler time. But it's it's also kind of like a simple story about right and wrong and, and good winning in the end. And And we all know in the real world that doesn't always happen, but it happens more often than it doesn't. If it didn't, we wouldn't all still be here. And I think there's some comfort in that. It's also just a cool song. I, when I was a kid, man, I loved this song. And I think if you weren't if you weren't around when this song was big, it's hard to understand how big, how big this song was. I mean, it was on the radio for years, for several years in a row, all the time. It came out in '78. It did well, but in uh, I think it was '82 or '83, somewhere around there, there was a made-for-TV movie that Kenny Rogers actually was in the movie Coward of the County. And uh, he played the uncle in the movie of the character Tommy that so, sung about in the song. Uh, he uh, and he actually you know performed and of course you got Kenny Rogers going to have to do that. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's a typical made-for-TV '80s movie. It's something that even though it wasn't, it could have been on you know Sunday night on Wonderful World of Disney or something like that. And I think there's something in that too. And it would be a good thing to watch with your kids. So when I found that it was available in full, for free, on YouTube, without YouTube Red or anything like that. It's just there. It's like, I have to play this song for Kenny Rogers week. So here we go. Coward of the County from Kenny Rogers. And do check out the links today for all the stuff in the guests, but also for a link where you can get the whole movie and maybe watch that with your kids during this uh, this kind of time where we're spending more time together. Uh, show them what the world used to be like well, not that long ago. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Everyone considered him a coward of the county He'd never stood one single time to prove the county wrong His mama named him Tommy, but folks just called him Yellow Something always told me they were reading Tommy wrong He was only ten years old Daddy died in prison I looked after Tommy Cause he was my brother's son I still recall the final words My brother said to Tommy Son, my life is over But yours has just begun Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done Walk away from trouble if you can It won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek I hope you're old enough to understand Son, you don't have to fight to be a man There's someone for everyone And Tommy's love is Becky 
he didn't have to prove he was a man. One day while he was working, the Gatlin boys came calling. They took turns at Becky, and there was three of them. Tommy opened up the door and saw his Becky crying. The torn dress, the shattered look was more than he could stand. He reached above the fireplace and took down his daddy's picture. As his tears fell on his daddy's face, he heard these words again. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. Now, it won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man. The Gatlin boys just laughed at him. When he walked into the bar room One of them got up And met him halfway across the floor When Tommy turned around They said, hey look old yellow's leaving But you could have heard a pin drop When Tommy stopped and locked the door Twenty years of crawling Was bottled up inside him wasn't holding nothing back He let him have it all When Tommy left the bar room Not a Gatlin boy was standing He said this one's for Becky As he watched the last one fall And I heard him say I promised your dad Not to do the things you've done I'll walk away from trouble when I can Please don't think I'm weak I didn't turn the other cheek And Papa, I sure hope you understand Sometimes you gotta fight when you're a man Everyone considered him the coward of